0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast, with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed the life and career of King Valdemar IV of Denmark, perhaps better known as Valdemar Don, because he brought Denmark out of its decline. Well, perhaps decline is too gentle of a word for it. Denmark had basically hit rock bottom. Most of the country, especially the best, most profitable bits, had been pawned off to various German noblemen, and the king had been reduced to a puppet, controlled by these foreign aristos. But then, the son of Christopher II, Valdemar, managed to claw his way into the throne and started to take back the kingdom piece by piece. To begin with, the Danish and German noblemen underestimated him and thought they'd be able to control him as they had his predecessors. But Valdemar used his cunning and his ruthlessness to get what he wanted. At first, he purchased back the land that had been mortgaged, but later, when he was strong enough, he started to eject remaining foreign squatters by force. He also applied force to conquer the island of Gotland from Sweden. He slaughtered the local peasants who tried to put up a fight, and then he extorted a heavy ransom from the rich trading city of Visby, to keep his soldiers from ransacking it. The campaign against Scotland brought Valdemar some serious money, but also some serious enemies. The Hanseatic League, an alliance of German trading cities in the Baltic Sea, started to see him as a threat and declared war on Denmark, allying with Sweden. But Valdemar managed to strike a deal with the League, and even convinced them to switch sides in the war, helping him fend off the Swedes. Valdemar succeeded with most things he did, and was given the nickname Valdemar Dawn because he brought a new day of hope for Denmark. One thing, and a pretty important thing that he failed to do though, was producing a male heir who survived him. So, when Valdemar Dawn eventually died, the crown had to go to one of the sons of his daughters. But we'll leave that issue for another time. In this episode, and the next, we'll look at what was happening north of the border. We'll bridge the gap between the Swedish conquest of Finland and the succession crisis in Denmark after the death of Valdemar Don, because it'll eventually concern the Swedes as well. Episode 49, the Jarl and the King. Last time we spoke about Sweden, we focused mainly on the conquest of Finland. When discussing the murder of King Erik, who later was upgraded to Saint Eric, I did give you a brief summary of the political development in Sweden in the 13th century. If you don't remember, it went something like this. King Erik was murdered by Magnus, who became king after him. Magnus was himself murdered less than two years later by a guy called Karl, whose father, King Sverker, Magnus had also murdered. Now Karl was king for a handful of years until Saint Erik's son Knut showed up and killed King Karl, making himself King Knut. Then followed a century or so of the two dynasties of Sverker and Eric fighting each other for the Swedish crown. The two feuding houses eventually united when Erik the Eleventh, the Lisp and Lame, of the house of Eric married Catherine of the house of Sverker. All these two lovebirds had to do was to produce a son who could inherit a united kingdom at peace. The so-called Eric Chronicle, which, by the way, is the first Swedish chronicle that we know of, mentions Eric the Lisp and Lame benevolently, but a little dismissively, as a good enough chap who took his job seriously, but didn't know how to have fun. And maybe that's why he and his wife never did get around to have any kids, after all. Or maybe it was Eric's dodgy gene pool. Either way, when Erik died, Jarl Birger Magnuson, the man the king had put in charge of the crusade in Finland, hurried back to claim the crown for himself. Unfortunately for him, he was too late, and instead someone else had been elected king of Sweden. Jarl Birger may have considered starting a rebellion to topple his rival. He was certainly powerful enough, But he didn't have to, since the guy who'd been elected king was none other than his own son, Valdemar Birgerson. But even though Valdemar was king, pretty much everyone realized that the man calling the shots was his father, the Jarl. Not least since Valdemar was only 11 years old when he was put on the throne. So who was this Jarl? And how come he'd reached this position of power? Well, Jarl was born sometime in the beginning of the 13th century, into the Swedish aristocracy. His father was a nobleman in his own right belonging to the influential House of Bielbu, and Birjers mother was the granddaughter of none other than the original King Sverker, connecting Birger Magnuson to the House of Sverker, one of the dynasties fighting for the Swedish crown. So Magnusson belonged to one of the most prominent families in the land. His influence at court grew even further when he married the king's sister, Ingeborg, sometime in the 1230s. Then, when the king gave him the title Jarl in 1248, Birger officially became the second most powerful man in the realm. In practice, though, he pretty much ran the place, especially as King Eric the Lisbon Lame grew older and weaker. It doesn't exactly strain one's credulity to assume that Jarl Birger had designs on the crown for himself when the aging and childless monarch were to die. And why not? Birger was married to the king's sister, so they were virtually family. But Jarl Birger didn't do anything hasty. He knew time was in his side. He went on loyally serving King Eric. One of the first things Birger had to deal with after his elevation to Jarl was to handle a high profile visit by a papal envoy. The cardinal and diplomat William of Modena came to Sweden, and a synod was called in scheninge in Ostrogothia. All the top brass in the church hierarchy in Sweden was in attendance, but they weren't the only ones to show up. A fair share of the great and the good among the secular nobility popped in as well. So basically, anyone who was anyone congregated in Schöninge. And since that's where they met, the meeting's gone down in history as the Synod of Schöninge. If the Swedish prelates and noblemen expected the meeting to focus on all their hard work spreading the Christian message of peace in Finland by their continued warfare against anyone who refused to convert, they were in for a rude awakening. The Cardinal wasn't there to pat them on the head and spread a few benevolent and encouraging words around. Not at all. He'd come to let the Swedes know that the Pope was really displeased with them. He was especially displeased with the habit among Swedish priests to treat the whole celibacy thing as a recommendation and not a binding rule. The cardinal assured them that it was very much a binding rule. He announced that all the married Swedish priests would have one year to get their affairs in order and divorce their wives. If they didn't, they'd be excommunicated. But William wasn't completely unreasonable. If the priest and his wife were 50 years or older, they could remain in the same house as long as they promised not to sleep in the same bed. But the synod wasn't all bad news for the Swedish clergy. It was also decided that from now on, good priests would be excluded from the duty to provide free lodgings and food for noblemen and people travelling through the area on official state business. The qualification that only good priests had the right to refuse unwelcome guests was added to a more general stipulation, exempting the king and the jarl from this rule. They could still force themselves upon even the best of priests if they felt hungry or needed a place to stay for the night. The king and Jarl Birger may have been happy about that particular decision, but the crown's influence over church matters was significantly weakened when it was decided that from now on the king's wouldn't have any say in the appointment of new bishops. Instead, the cathedral chapters, that is the clerics connected to the cathedral, would elect new bishops, and their decisions would be confirmed or rejected by the Pope in Rome. Despite the synod shifting the balance of power away from the temporal power and in the direction of the church, Jalberier supported Cardinal William of Medina in his efforts at Schenninge. Historians have speculated that this may have been the result of some kind of intricate machinations and power games within the upper crust of the Swedish nobility at the time, but another possibility is that Birger was simply a learned and pious man who wanted the Swedish church to adopt a modus operandi that was already more or less universally accepted on the continent. But we'll never know for sure what drove him. The Jarl didn't limit his statecraftship to diplomatic dealings with the Holy See. He was also a military leader, and as such, he spent quite a bit of time east of the Baltic Sea. Traditionally, he's been associated with a military campaign against the Russians in the Novgorod Republic, but Swedish sources are tight-lipped about this particular event, possibly because according to Russian sources, the whole thing was an unmitigated fiasco for the Swedes. At the time, the Russians were under attack by the Mongols from the east, so the Swedes might have thought that the Russians wouldn't be able to withstand an attack from the west as well. But according to the Russians, the campaign ended with a Swedish defeat at what they refer to as the Battle at Neva in 1240. Neva is the river that runs from Lake Ladoga, Europe's largest lake, to the Gulf of Finland, that is the easternmost bit of the Baltic Sea. Vikings going to Miklagord or Serkland would often start their journeys on the Russian rivers here. And today, the modern-day city of St. Petersburg straddles the river. The Russian forces were led by Alexander Nevsky. Of course, he wasn't called Nevsky at the battle, he was given that name afterwards because of the battle. And that's why the central avenue cutting through the centre of St. Petersburg is called Nevsky Prospect. A later Russian legend from the 16th century claims that during the battle, Alexander Nevsky duelled with the King of Sweden himself and wounded him in the face. There's no reason to believe that Eric the Lisbon lame would have participated in a military campaign, let alone a duel with a non-lame Russian commander. But, when Jarl Birger Magnussen's cranium was analyzed by modern archaeologists, they found traces of a sword blow to his head. This has led some to conclude that the legend is true, except for the detail that Birger Magnuson wasn't actually the king of Sweden. But, Since the original Russian 14th century description of the battle doesn't mention any dramatic high-level dueling between the two commanders, it's more likely that the whole episode is an invention and that the Jarl sustained his head wound in some other battle. After all, he did see more than his fair share of battles, both crusading in Finland and while fighting domestic enemies in Sweden. Some of these domestic enemies have been grouped together under the name Falkungs, we don't know much about them and why they were fighting the crown, but there may have been several reasons. According to established custom and ancient tradition, the people of Upland, the region surrounding Uppsala, had been exempt from paying taxes and instead they'd have to provide the king with soldiers and ships whenever he wanted to fight a little war somewhere. But now things were changing. Upland was losing its special position and was required to pay taxes, just like every other region, ruled by the king of Sweden. The people of Upland didn't like the idea of paying taxes, in effect being reduced from a semi-nobility, performing a heroic and glorious service to the king, to mere subjects, forced to pay money like some defeated tributary enemies of the king. Another possible reason for the resistance was the fact that the Falkungs were led by a man called Holmger Knutsson, who was the son of King Knut II, possibly a great-grandson of St. Eric, and anyway, the man who was king before Eric the lisbon Lame. So this Holmger Knutsson may have been fighting not so much against the king's policies, whatever they were, but for the throne itself, thinking he was the rightful king. In 1247, Birger Magnuson led a force of professional mounted knights to meet the falcon troops, mainly consisting of free farmers gathered to defend their traditional rights to fight and not pay taxes. They met in battle at a place called Sparsætra, on waterlogged meadows west of the church there. The heavy cavalry led by Birger Magnuson won against the freedom-loving amateurs and the proud Uplanders had no choice but to start paying taxes. Even though this battle is largely forgotten today, it reverberated through Scandinavia in the 13th century. We have Danish and even Icelandic sources mentioning how after the battle of Sparsätra, Uplanders, who had once been fearsome, proud warriors, demanding tribute from their vanquished enemies, were now reduced to paying such humiliating taxes themselves. That description is interesting, not only for the way it shows how the region of Upland lost its special elevated status within Sweden, but also for giving us a glimpse of how medieval Scandinavians understood taxes as a tribute the subjects paid to their rulers in order to be left alone. No one back then actually expected to get something in return from the crown for paying taxes. Except not being punished. Paying taxes was basically like organized extortion carried out by the crown. Anyway... Holmgr Knutsson himself fled north, where he hoped he'd be beyond the reach of the king and the Jarl, but he was soon apprehended and beheaded. The Eric Chronicle claims that King Eric the Lisbon Lame participated in Holmgr's funeral, honoring his dead foe by escorting him to his last resting place. This was an old Viking tradition, where, by showing respect to your defeated enemy, you'd hopefully heal rifts in society and mark the beginning of a new era, where bygones would be bygones and everyone should get along again. The gesture only had a limited effect, though. In Upland, Holmger Knutson soon developed into a folk hero and an unofficial saint. Stories of his miracles were told as far and wide as in Denmark, already a few years after Holmger had been beheaded. As I mentioned in episode 42, Swedish Finland, Jarl Birger Magnusson was sent to lead a crusade in Finland in 1249. It was during this, the second Swedish crusade in Finland, that Swedish rule on the eastern side of the Gulf of Bothnia was firmly and permanently established. I mean permanently for 550 years at least. It was while the Jarl was in Finland, crusading and establishing Swedish rule, that King Erik the Lisbon Lame drew his last breath. As you know, The king didn't have a son, or any child at all, and therefore the succession was unclear. So the ambitious Jarl really wanted to be there for the election of a new king. Maybe, just maybe, as I mentioned before, he was hoping that he, as Jarl and the late king's brother-in-law, may be suitable for the top job. But 13th century communication, not to mention transportation, wasn't particularly fast or reliable, so when the Jarl finally made it back to Sweden, he realized that he was too late. A new king had already been elected, his own son, Valdemar Birgerson. A nobleman called Jor the Blue had convinced the thing to elect Valdemar Birgerson King of Sweden. Not because he was Birger's son, but rather because Valdemar's mother, Ingeborg, was the sister of the dead king, who then consequently was Valdemar's maternal uncle. At first, Jarl Birger flew into a rage. How dare they? How very dare they? They had no right to elect his underaged son king in his absence. You cannot elect a child king without his father's permission. Obviously, it meant nothing to Jarl Berger and everyone else that the child's mother had been there all along. But the Jarl making a scene didn't phase Jor the Blue. He retorted darkly that if the Jarl wasn't happy with his son being king, Jor could find another candidate in an instant. Under his own shirt, as he put it. That shut the Jarl up, and he accepted the arrangement without any further drama. And at the end of the day, it was a great arrangement for Jarl Birger. True, he didn't get to be the actual king, but he now acted as regent, holding the true power in Sweden. In theory, until his son would come of age, but in practice, his influence would last until his own death. But being the guy in charge isn't always fun, and Jarl Birger's stint as regent got off to a challenging start. The old Falkungs rose in rebellion again, possibly because they had backed another candidate in the election where Valdemar Birgerson won the crown. Jarl Birger wasn't interested in a protracted civil war against the Falkungs, so he sent out feelers to the leaders letting them know that he was open to making a deal with them. He issued an invitation to negotiate and a promise of safe conduct for the Falkung leaders. When the rebels received this message, they thought the talks sounded like a splendid idea. Why fight for something that you could squeeze out of the Jarl at the negotiating table? He must be frightened if he chose not to fight. But Jarl Birger wasn't frightened. He was just smart and unscrupulous. When the two sides met at a place called Brew, the Jarl quickly forgot all his promises of safe conduct, arrested the falcon delegation and had them all beheaded. That solved that problem. It was of course a serious transgression to break a promise of self-conduct, but since Jörg Birger won, and the chroniclers were on his side, they don't tend to emphasize the promise-breaking part much. The elimination of the falcon leadership brought peace to Sweden, and Jörg Birger used the calm to implement a few legal reforms he had been mulling over for a while. First of all, he introduced a new kind of law to the Swedish legal system, namely laws that were valid throughout the entire kingdom. Up until that point, Sweden, like most other countries, had multiple sets of law codes, each valid only in a particular region or district. This probably sounds familiar to you, since we've talked about the same thing also when discussing legal reforms in Norway. Anyway, Jarl Birger's reform wasn't as radical as that of his contemporary, King Magnus Lawmender in Norway. Birger's new laws that were valid throughout the whole kingdom, didn't replace the old regional law codes, they merely supplemented them. These new laws that Birger introduced were so-called peace laws or protection laws, and they were meant to limit feuding in Sweden. Remember, feuding had been important in a society with no central authority that could carry out sentences or punish criminals, so the victim or their family were tasked with punishing anyone who'd wronged them. But in the middle ages, the new kingdoms strived at centralizing and concentrating power into the hands of the king, which meant that punishing criminals would be the job of the crown from now on. So these new protection laws declared peace on people under certain circumstances, meaning that you couldn't attack someone you'd otherwise have the right to attack under the traditional regulations of a feud. Vengeance was now off the table against anyone who was at home, in church or at the thing. The laws also completely forbade attacks on women. And that wasn't Jarl Birger's only legal reform that was good for women. He also introduced legislation that allowed Swedish women to inherit, something they hadn't been able to do before. This may have happened under Danish influence, since the law passed in 1260 in Jönköping, when King Valdemar was in town to marry the Danish princess Sophia, one of the four Plaupenny sisters, if you remember them. The new law was modelled on the Danish rule that a woman would inherit half the portion of a man, so a daughter would get half as much as a son, unfair, sure, but still a step forward. The old laws hadn't allowed women to inherit at all, or as the old Ostrogothic law phrased it, goes to hat and not to hood, revealing both medieval misogyny and a noteworthy gender coding of different headgear. Another law introduced by Jarl Birger changed the Swedish credit market when he forbade the practice of selling yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. Up until this point, you'd been able to become a slave to the person you'd borrowed money from if you were unable to pay it back. Jarl Birger also banned trial by ordeal, that is, proving your innocence by carrying smoldering hot iron in your hands without being burned. At the same time as Jarl Birger was busy passing laws on a national level, things were happening regionally as well the ancient regional laws, which traditionally only had been recited orally by the law speaker, were now being written down. Once again, this is a trend we also see in other Scandinavian societies more or less at the same time. Historians don't know for sure if this is because a new and more complex society demanded so many laws that it started to become too much of a burden to remember them all, or if this was an influence of continental customs, or even a demand from the king or Jarl. But the fact that the oral laws were written down has given us some intriguing insights into 13th century Swedish society. In towns and cities, such as they were, there were separate laws, just like in other parts of Scandinavia. Scholars assume that the law in Stockholm was based on the laws of Birka, that famous Viking town and trading port in Lake Mälaren that had been abandoned at the end of the Viking Age. In Visby, on Gotland, they used a German city law, but in several other Swedish cities, they adopted the Birka law from Stockholm. This reveals a certain power dynamic, with Stockholm being the dominant city in Sweden already early on, even though it was founded later than several other towns. It's also noteworthy that in places where the Hanseatic League was established, Stockholm's influence was overshadowed by Lübeck and the other German trading ports. The Birka law doesn't cover everything you might want to regulate by law, so presumably it was supplemented with law from the local region, wherever it was implemented. As you'd expect from a law made for trading ports, the law code focuses a lot on trading and shipping. So there are laws about borrowing boats and salvaging wreckage from sunken ships, how much you'd have to pay if you pushed someone off a pier into the water, or if you slandered the sheriff or the mayor. The Birka law also stipulated that if you opened a barrel of wine and sold it without the approval of the sheriff, he'd seize the barrel and you'd have to pay a fine of three marks. If you stole in the street before noon, you'd pay twelve marks. But if you could contain yourself until the afternoon, you'd only pay six marks. Another important thing that Jarl Birger Magnuson did during his lifetime, or something he's been credited with doing by posterity, at any rate is the founding of Stockholm, the current capital of Sweden. There had been towns along the shores of Lake Mellaren for a long time before Stockholm was established, but none of them had the superior strategic position that this new city had. Stockholm was founded on an island that's located exactly where the lake meets the Baltic Sea, and only two narrow waterways, one to the north and one to the south of the island, connect the lake and the sea. Anyone who controls that island controls all traffic and trade in and out of Lake Mälaren, making it a virtual gold mine. The easily controlled passage in and out of the lake was also beneficial from a military perspective, obviously, and Stockholm is sometimes known as the lock of Lake Mälaren. And such a lock was probably needed, because some reports survive mentioning raids by heathen Finns across the Baltic Sea into Lake Mälaren. Reports that kind of undermine the official record of the jarl successfully having pacified and Christianized all of Finland by now. Be that as it may, the first surviving written record mentioning Stockholm stems from 1252, when Jarl Birger wrote a letter after the killing of the falcon enemies at Herewadsbro. That's why he's seen as the founder of Stockholm. The year before, in 1251, the Jarl had granted German merchants wide-ranging rights and privileges in Sweden, such as the right for German ships and merchants to move and trade toll-free in the kingdom. German merchants were also allowed to settle freely in Sweden, including Finland. These Germans helped to expand and invigorate the Swedish economy, they were good for trade, administration and industrial know-how, in terms of mining, and so the Jarl made sure to cultivate excellent connections with the Hanseatic League. But it's hard to escape the suspicion that some of this favouring of German business interests was based on the fact that Jarl Birger had German mercenaries paid for by loans from German merchants to thank for the crushing of the rebellions of the falcons. The Hanseatic League wasn't the only foreign power that benefited from the Jarl's foreign policy. Birger Magnusson strove to establish friendly relations with Denmark and Norway as well. Sweden and Norway had been involved in a conflict for decades, but in 1249, Jarl Birger was instrumental in putting an end to the conflict and reaching a peace treaty and lödöse. One of the clauses of that treaty stipulated that the Jarl's 11-year-old daughter Rikissa was to marry Håkon Håkansson the Young, known to you from episode 45, Law Mentor and Sons. Håkon was the heir to the Norwegian throne, so Birger had not only secured peace for Sweden, but also a position for his own daughter as the future Queen of Norway. So there were some obvious political advantages to the marriage, both for the country and the Jarl personally. As an extra bonus, Jarl Birger actually seemed to have really liked his son-in-law Håkon. So much so, that when he and Rikissa came to visit Sweden for Easter in 1257, Birger forbade the people at the mansion where they were celebrating the holiday to make jokes about Norwegians, which apparently was a thing among snooty Swedes already back in the middle ages. That Easter visit seems to have passed without any major incidents or rude jokes, but unfortunately for everyone involved, Håkon Håkonsson, the young, died soon afterward, leaving his younger brother Magnus to inherit the Norwegian throne. And as you may recall, Magnus in turn married Ingeborg, one of the four ploughpenny sisters, tying Norway closer to Denmark instead of Sweden. So Rikissa never did become queen of Norway, but she was eventually paired up with another prince from northern Germany and married him instead. Rikissa and Valdemar, who officially was king of Sweden, weren't Birger and Ingeborg's only children. Most noteworthy among the other members of the large brood was Magnus Birgersson, who was styled duke of Sudermania. We'll have a lot to say about him in a bit. Jarl Birger Magnusson's wife, Ingeborg, died in 1254, and after a suitable mourning period had passed, the Jarl set out to find himself a new wife. You may recall that he first had his eyes set on none other than Ingeborg, the Plaupany sister who married Magnus of Norway, who had replaced Birger's own dead son-in-law as heir to the Norwegian crown. but. As you may also recall, she was whisked away to Norway thanks to the quick thinking of the Bishop of Oslo, and instead, Jarl Birger had to settle for the widow of King Abel of Denmark, making him something like the uncle-in-law of the princess he'd originally hoped to marry. Oh well. Birger Magnuson himself eventually died on October 21st, 1266, when he was in his mid-fifties. He had dominated Swedish political life for at least two decades, and in many ways shaped the kingdom into what we think about when we think of medieval Sweden. He had incorporated Finland into the kingdom, and he had incorporated the kingdom into the wider Roman Catholic Church. He had broken the power of the uplanders and reduced Upland to just another province, creating the foundation for a unified kingdom. And he had founded Stockholm. Maybe. He'd been the most powerful Jarl Sweden had ever seen, and in fact, he was to be the last Jarl in Sweden. No subsequent king ever appointed anyone else to that position, and in the popular imagination, the title itself has become so intimately connected to Birger Magnusson that people often confuse it for his last name, and in Sweden, he's widely known today as Birger Jarl. So, Birger Magnusson had been a political giant, towering over a generation of Swedes, and especially his own son, King Valdemar. But now he was dead, and Valdemar could finally, after 16 years on the throne, step out of his father's shadow and become a real king, a ruler in his own right. Now it was Valdemar who called the shots. In 1260, Valdemar had married Sophia, the eldest daughter of King Eric Plowpenny of Denmark. And yes, that meant that if Jörg Birger had been successful in marrying Ingeborg, he and his son would have been brothers-in-law. Not creepy at all. In 1272, Valdemar's sister-in-law, Jutta, yet another and his sister, visited Sweden after she'd been released from the convent, where she'd been forced to live as a nun by her controlling stepmother, Black Greta. Now Jutta, who was very beautiful, was determined to live life to the fullest and that apparently included becoming King Valdemar's mistress. We don't know whether her sister, Queen Sophia, knew that Jutta was sleeping with her husband, but if she did, she chose to look the other way. At least until Jutta became pregnant and gave birth to a son. The king's bastard. This wasn't unprecedented, and as I'm sure you may recall, there had been many royal bastards in the past, but Queen Sophia couldn't accept that this one was her sister's. ...so she gave public air to her outrage. That turned the affair into a scandal. Jutta beat a hasty retreat back to Denmark... ...where she was sent off to another convent for safekeeping. King Valdemar was forced to undertake a pilgrimage to Rome... ...to get the Pope to grant him absolution for his sin. And if King Valdemar wasn't in enough trouble as it was... ...his brother, Duke Magnus, also decided to exploit the king's absence to start a rebellion. Magnus resented his brother's position and his insistence that Magnus pay taxes. Valdemar didn't like his younger brother's attitude, and Queen Sophia absolutely detested her brother-in-law. She used to make fun of him for being very thin and dark, at least for a medieval Swede, calling him the Tinker. The two brothers gathered their armies and met at the Battle of Hova on June 14, 1275. Magnus had backup from yet another brother, Eric, Duke of Småland, and from the King of Denmark, Eric Klipping, who had sent some of his mercenaries. Duke Magnus and his professional hired swords crushed the Swedish defense army, consisting mostly of peasant conscripts. King Valdemar didn't participate in the battle. According to tradition, he was taking a nap when his army was annihilated on the battlefield at Hova in Tiveden Forest. When he heard about the outcome, he fled westward, toward Norway, but he was captured in Värmland, the border region. When Valdemar had been apprehended, Magnus could proceed to Uppsala, where he was elected king instead of his deposed brother on July 22nd at the Stones of Mura outside of Uppsala, the traditional spot for the election of Swedish kings. The stones are still there by the way, and uh, you can go and see them, in fact I think you should. Anyway, poor Valdemar. After waiting 16 years for a chance to actually rule his kingdom, he was ousted after only a few years. To make matters worse, his wife Sophia left him in 1277. Either because he was a philanderer who had knocked up her sister, or because he had lost his job. Or perhaps a little bit of both. Either way, she went back to Denmark to get away from her cheating loser husband. But Valdemar hadn't given up hope of one day reclaiming his throne. So when he learned that Magnus had gotten into a conflict with the Danes, he saw his chance. Magnus had been slow in repaying Eric Clipping for the hired troops he had provided in the campaign that toppled King Valdemar. As you know, the Danish king was cash strapped, so when Valdemar now turned to Eric, asking for help to oust his usurping brother, Eric was eager to assist. For a fee, of course. But Valdemar's attempt to reclaim his throne was a failure. And he was eventually arrested by Magnus and locked up at Nieköping Castle for the rest of his life. And that life turned out to be relatively long, even longer than Magnus's own. But that's a story for another episode. Next episode, in fact. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are interested in Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners to the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian History-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack Collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get a t-shirt, mug, tote bag, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as, wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash scandinavianhistorypodcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at schenkman. That's S H A I N K M.